I got places we can talk about, but I'll let you open up first questions. Any questions? Covered it all, you know. Okay, okay. Let me let me suggest to you then some reasons why I think. And let me be clear on something. I don't think it's either or. I think that in various seasons of your life, you may be the low, you may be the the crushed spirit, and you may be the wealthy. And there's those aren't the only two categories. That that passage in First Thessalonians four has the the. Let me read it. First Thessalonians four. Um, dear, hear me. Five fifteen, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. And again, I don't think that's an exhaustive list. And, and my point being, different medicine for different melodies. But I do think that that the danger of self-sufficiency, self-pride—I can do this. Look what I've done with my own hands—is more of a problem today than it's ever been. Because I was reading a book um, by a secular Jewish guy. And he made the observation that for the first time, really the first time in human history in the last 40, 50 years, the three perennial dangers to life are pretty much removed, which are war, famine, and disease. And what I mean by that is if someone gets sick and dies and doesn't live out there four score and 10, we, what happens? Someone went wrong. Sue somebody. We treat it as an abnormality. We treat it as something that needs accounting for. In other words, we don't treat it. It certainly does happen. But we don't treat it as like, yeah, that's the way life is. And up until recent medicine, you just, childhood diseases would take out, you know, a third or a quarter of your kids. And so, the, I, mean, I, was, I mean, I remember reading Marsden's, um, James Marsden's biography on Jonathan Edwards, and he was reading some of his letters he'd write to his children. And I remember thinking it was a little macabre, because in each and every one of them, he's basically saying, you might die tomorrow. And I'm like, man, that's kind of heavy. But then I'm realizing, like, these are people who just about every family had an infant death. And, and you'll, you'll read and like, it'll just be a plague swept through and 30 people died in the town. I mean, that, the world you were living in was a world where plague could show up. You know? um, and so for all of human history until recent times, you were well aware disease could just sweep in and you could die. And famine, living, I mean, how, how big of a deal is famine in, in the Bible as a danger and a threat? And who here is ever worried there just won't be food? Maybe not the food you want, but I, I don't... I mean, Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. I have never, in recent memory, wondered, what will I... Lord, give me some... I have nothing to eat. What will I eat today? Lord, please help. I mean, it, again, it's the issues of, will they have what I want at Costco? But we have more food in our gas stations than most countries have ever had. And so that's not the world we live in. And then, of course, the issue of war. And, of course, there is war, but especially in the West, war happens over there. And, again, for most of human history, war bands can come over the hill and take some of your women and children captive and cut you down and burn your fields and run. And until the rise of the modern nation state, that was a real perennial reality. And so for most of human history, there's a self-aware, obvious, everyone understood reality that these three things famine disease and war could strike quickly could strike suddenly and cut you down and we don't live in that world anymore and so we're further removed from the phantomness of life that we're that little spray can that life's fragile 
And we, we, yeah, we, we are, of all people, I think, need to be reminded of the, the, the vacuousness and the illusion of the pomp and grandeur of life. Um, I, I think that we, of all people, need to take that pill and take that medicine and, 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 and look at that long and hard. Um, any thoughts on that? Any pushback on that? That makes sense? Open your Bibles to Proverbs. Proverbs is probably the best book for highlighting this reality. Um, I alluded to one passage in Proverbs. I'd like to take a look at it. Not Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Go to Ecclesiastes. Sorry. Did I say Proverbs the first time or Ecclesiastes? Okay. Well, you're close. I got you close. I want to go to Ecclesiastes. Um. And again, the echoing refrain of Ecclesiastes is vanity, vanity, a grasping at the wind. And what I want to look at is, um, I think it's seven. Yeah, seven. Verse two through five. It is better to go to the house of mourning in the house of feasting, which is to say it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding reception. Right? Why? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. We tend to want to be distracted from difficult realities. We don't... T- tend to like to look at our mortality most people want to live their lives like they're never going to die and then death catches them suddenly and unawares um and and so these types of things the author of ecclesiastes solomon is saying force us i mean i I love doing funerals that not totally love doing funerals one of the things i like about funerals is you can't look away this is where we're all headed, given enough time. And people have to look at it and acknowledge it. And I'll, I'll usually, if you've heard me do a funeral, I'll, I'll openly state that. Like, you've been trying to avoid thinking about this most of your life, but at least here and right now, you can't look away. This is where we're all headed. Are you ready for that? Um, because, and especially, again, with entertainment and movies, we have so many things to distract us so that we don't have free time to actually think about ultimate questions and realities. So our needing to remind ourselves we're, we're a mist, we're a flower that f- flourishes and can get cut down is, is truth we need to focus on to guard against the pomp, the self-importance, the self-entitlement, the pride of life, and then the worldliness that comes with it. Because if you think this world is sure, well, then the things of this world become more valuable. If the things of this world are a mist, they're gone. They're not as valuable. You're not going to spend as much for them. You're not going to prize them as much. But if you really feel like, no, this world is my home for at least another 30, 40, 50 years. It's my home. And I got a good, secure hold on it. And I got prospects in this world. Then you're going to be guilty of the worldliness that James talks about in chapter 4 that he so strongly rebukes. So I, I think more than at any time in human history, and living in the wealthiest country in the wealthiest period of 
we of all people need a really good dose of James's counsel to the rich, even as we may periodically be also the lowly and the broken and need to hear other things. I'm not saying it's the only medicine we need, but I think it's medicine we need often and regularly. Okay? Right I agree. Awesome. Yes, I agree. And and you know Hear what? Here's, a, here's an opportunity. Every year we go backpacking in the mountains for six days and we have a young adult group. You guys can experience hunger. You can experience pitting yourselves against animals who could kill you. Sleeping on the ground. Survival situations like this. Mm. Don't you think they're good for our soul? Oh, yeah. I, I think that's also one of the reasons why fasting is... There's so many things fasting is good for. Yeah, this is a recruitment, too. But oh, it so is an is opportunity. Just, okay. <laughs> yes. No, no. I, I think I think fasts are helpful. I mean, yeah. I'd encourage... I mean, yeah. To break away from the things we're used to. To remind ourselves of what we... To remind ourselves of what's bonus, luxury, and to make that contrast. And to think about those things are, are critically important. And to be boasting in those things. Because if you're boasting in your frailty and your finitude, it's, it's antithetical to boasting and look at what I have and look at who I am and look what I'm capable of, which is everything the rich man in Luke. Go to, go to Luke. This would maybe be the antithesis of, of James's counsel to the rich. Was it Luke 12? I think it's Luke 12. I got it written down here. Um... Luke 19? No, 17. I don't know. It's in here somewhere. Hold on. Um, there you go. 17.10. Um, no, that's the unworthy servants. No, 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 no. It's the uh, guy who builds the tower. Um, hold on. It's actually a little further back, I believe. Yes, exactly that one. Um it's back a ways. Um, I want to see. 746. 646. No, no. It's uh, the guy calls out from Jesus. Help tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus turned. What? What? No. 1213 probably sounds about right to me. I should have this stuff ready. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, that's exactly it. The parable of the rich fool. But just by the way, notice that all the different teachings Jesus has warning about the dangers of riches. And I know there are dangers that come with poverty and lowliness. I'm not saying there aren't. But Jesus certainly highlights the dangers of possessions. We talk about the, you know, the rich man of Lazarus. But here I want to read this one. Um, someone in the crowd said to him, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard, get the warning language, against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, which is another way of saying, you're a flower that appears a little while. That's not what matters. That's not the substance of your life. That isn't what's going to endure. He told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself... What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, you notice the emphasis here? This guy's thinking. 
Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So that attitude of I'm safe, I'm good, I'm prepared for the future. I mean, because most people are working for what for their immediate needs. We're working to pay off our rent or mortgage, and you're working to pay your bills. This guy's reached a level where he can just stop working. He can retire. That'd be the modern vernacular. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. God did not design you to be able to work at the same capacity your entire life. Um, the Bible talks about those who lean on canes, right? I mean, whose strength is the strength of the glory of young men is their strength. And yet the temptation is you prepare, okay, I'm safe now. I'm good. I don't need to worry. I can be at ease. What's he, what's he trusting in? He's trusting in his stuff. And then he stands before God. So I think that's the opposite attitude to what James is commending, um, is, is, that, is that sense of uh, relying and trusting in your possessions and your abilities. And yeah, I think, I think we in the West, we need to hear this and dwell on this and own this well. Um, and the reason why I'm hammering this is I see so much of this, the Christian self-help, self-esteem movement just try to smuggle in all of the your special little sunbeam. And no, no, good authors, right? James Dobson's done a bunch of good stuff, but I read, he's the one I read. He's done, no, he's done a bunch of good things. But he's the one who wrote, God, Jesus wouldn't die for trash. Don't say you're worthless. Jesus wouldn't die for trash. You press that logic out. It's not grace. It's a bargain deal. God doesn't waste his money. He makes good investments. And he looked at you and he said, yeah, you're worth my son. That's what that logic pressed out goes to. It's not gospel. Yes, sir. Oh, there oh. was, there was oh, a not, question too. Oh, there's a question. So oh, okay. It, when you do funerals. Dave's on deck. Yes. Do you have a lot of people that you're able to, that come up to you afterwards and ask for more information typically? For what? Uh, salvation. Oh. No, Gospel? usually, usually I don't. I, every now, usually there'll be one or two people who are Christians who give me like an attaboy okay. at the at the thing. I I don't know what fruit my funerals have borne. Right. No, no, right. I can think okay. of at least one. Okay. Uh, one, one, one thing. But yeah, that was just curious. Oh, yeah. Okay, Dave, you're up. She's like, do people just get mad at you when you do. That? I mean, I try not to do it in like an obnoxious way, but like, look, guys, let's let's yeah. not dance around it. Death is a reality that's coming for us all, and I want to challenge you. Have you? I know you don't want to think about it, but you have to think about it now, and I got you for a few minutes, so we're going to think about it. It's, you know, basically, I'll just play my cards on the table. That's what I'm doing. And um, Dave. Well, in regards to the trash quote there, yeah, who, who was that author again? Dobson. Dobson. Um, I listened to a lot of uh, messages about how the Apostle Paul viewed himself. And there's lots of messages out there about how he considered himself a clay pot. And there were two different types of pots in a normal household of that day. <laughs> One was for the fine china. The other was for the garbage. One was the, the bedpan. The yeah. bedpan. Yeah. And that's what Paul considered himself <laughs> as. And well, in, another, in another sphere, you've got Joel Olstein and that whole prosperity light movement, although I think he's probably gone full prosperity at this point. Um, but you've got a, I am powerful. I, he's got his whole book, The Power of I Am. 
You got to speak these blessings over yourself. I am important and I am prosperous and I am successful and I am admired. And I, I am, am that I am. And I'm just like, your teachings from the pit of hell. It It, it is absolutely, but we so, the, part of the reason I'm trying to point this out, we, we've bought into this notion that, um, that, a p part of a necessary ingredient of an integrated self is a feeling of self-worth. Now, there's something to that. If people aren't working, if people don't have something to do, there's a sense of worthlessness. You, you do need to feel like you're doing something that matters. People need some sense of agency. Uh, when people just rest indefinitely, they actually tend to get depressed. If you're not active doing something, God made us to work to do things. There, there's something to that. But what our, again, what I was trying to make the point this morning, our world comes back to is we've defined love first and foremost as affirmation. You need to affirm me and my choices. There is no room for I disagree with your choice, but I love you. No, you hate me. Or you're afraid of me. You're phobic of me. Whatever those choices might be. And because we bought into this love is affirmation. The cross is not saying God saying, I love you just the way you are. It's God saying, I love you in spite of the way you are. And I intend to change the way you are. My son will die so that you don't have to be the way you are. So it's, it's talking about like how God's love meets us just where we are. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. And it doesn't leave us where we are. Amen. How? No, exactly. Right. Um, and that's, that's the, that's the, that's the balancing act. We want to emphasize it's grace. It's not works. You don't need to shape up to become a Christian, but look at what God did to make way for and to deal with all of what's broken and wrong with you. And here's what he's done to try to then transform and change you and prepare you for glory. And so there's, there can be a temptation to just sort of, no, I am special. He died for me. That is not the gospel. And yet it's not, I'm just this worthless. There is something I'm, the value is the one who loves me, the one who chose me. My father cares for me. Uh, let me, let me, um, one of my favorite Psalms, we're looking at this tonight, go to, go to Psalm 139. David delights in the fact that God thinks of him. This is the delight a child has in my love for my children. Only as my kids get older do they start to care, like, do you love me because of who and what I am? I love you, and that's enough, right? And it delights them. But eventually, we all want to know, do you love me because I'm smart? Tell me I'm smart. Do you love me because I'm good? Tell me I'm good. Do you? But in Psalm 139, David is marveling about a number of things about God. And one of them is God's thinks of him, right? Um Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And that language, how precious to me are your thoughts. The, the implications towards me. God's thinking of me. Or um, what is the psalm? I'm poor and mindful, yet God takes notice of me. Go to Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or marveling that God thinks of me, that God loves me, that God cares for me. I'm delighting and boasting in that. God is determined, despite the fact that I'm a rebel and I bring nothing to the table of worth, he's predestined me and he has set before me to heir, an heir of, to inherit a kingdom. Like, I'm to marvel at that and delight in that. But it's not some affirmation of I was worthy of a kingdom. <laughs> I always thought I was. I thought I deserved a kingdom. That's, if that's the way you want to twist it, you're twisting it. 
And so it's, it, you can look at the high exaltation of God of his children, and as long as you don't smuggle in, and we deserve it, then great, amen, delight in those things. But our culture is particularly trying to smuggle in the, and you deserve it. Um, and you got to watch out for that. And so one of the things I want to highlight this morning is neither the poor or the rich are looking at themselves. Well, no, the rich is. Look at yourself as a vapor and a mist and a phantom and a flower that's here for a day. Look at that, you know? And uh, if you want to look to yourself, look to your finitude and your frailty and your impotence and your um, innate lack of significance. Um, and then understand that God still loves you, called you, saved you, redeemed you. Okay, next question. Any other questions? My secondary mini-sermon. Oh! Well, not a question, but a statement. Oh, okay. Statement. statement. Um, you know, I think when we look at what James is doing here, um, he's taking the gospel and just reiterating what, what Jesus taught um, as we look at when the uh, rich young ruler came to him mm. and he told him, um, you know, what must I do to be saved? And then the man turns and walks away. The disciples say, well, then who can be saved if the rich can't be saved? And Jesus is attacking that um, pharisaical, rabbinical teaching that if you're financially blessed, then God is absolutely on your side. You, yeah. you know, you are being blessed because there is something good about you. God has highly favored you. And it's because you're just so wonderful. And Jesus is attacking that system. And it it it, it prevails to today. And I think when we, you know, look at our culture, uh, the self-esteem movement, um, you know, where people say, uh, I know in some of the churches I was in, they would have the uh, children come up and recite the invectus. You know, I'm the captain of my ship. I'm the master of my soul. And I was like, okay, we don't understand what we're saying here. And no, because, no, you know, don't. this is something that, you know, you want to give your children self-esteem because you live in a society where, you know, yeah. people uh, understand, you know, before uh, the civil rights movement and we've mm -hmm. gone through that, you know, where people would say, well, that, you know, because of the color of your skin, you're this, you're that. And the gospel totally eliminates all that because he doesn't say what color you are. He says right. um, those who are rich. Well, that could be anybody. Those who are poor. This is how we think. This is how we are to think about our social, economic, um, political, educational stand, none of that has any bearing on the gospel because, it, you know, as you stated, it's a vapor. It's not going to last. And I think he's just reiterating that yeah. and helping people to see that this is just another holdover from um, th that old rabbinical, uh, pharisaical understanding of what yeah. it means to be right and justified yeah. in God's eyes. And there's a real sense in which the Mosaic Covenant is a prosperity gospel covenant. If Israel was faithful, they should expect rains, they should expect peace, they should expect their enemies to be beaten in battle, they should expect children and, and, and fecundity. I mean, so there is a sense in which, not a sense, in a very real way, the Mosaic Covenant puts prosper, what we call prosperity features on the table nationally for Israel. Now, even in the Old Testament, there are examples like Job, where even though Job is a righteous man and did what was right, that doesn't guarantee it. But the Mosaic Covenant, you read the last two chapters, hey, if you're faithful, this is what's going to happen. Hey, if you're not faithful, this is what's going to happen. And so 
there is some basis for the Jewish thinking that if you're wealthy, then God must be blessing. I mean, Abraham is pretty wealthy. Job is pretty wealthy, right? Um, and then the new covenant makes it clear the blessings we have can't rot, can't be taken from us, are stored in heaven, every spiritual. So the New Testament ramps up the riches and then it transfers the domain pretty primarily. And not that that was never the case in the Old Covenant. There still was, you know, those things. But certainly the Old Covenant had far more of, at least nationally, yeah, if you're faithful, it's going to go well for you. If you're faithful, you're going to, you're going to be, have kids and have crops and have safety and security and you're going to be, you're going to be okay. You're going to dwell securely. And there's none of that promise under the New Covenant temporally, right? So, no, that's the only thing I'd add is just that be a little patient with some of the, but yeah, Jesus has to rebuke his disciples. Who sinned? Is him and his parents. Somebody sinned because that guy's blind and God blinding. But think about it. Blinding is a cursing. Are you cursed if you're blind in a sense? Yeah. It's, it's a type of cursing. It's a type of blight. Okay. God's just. So if he's cursed or blighted them, there's got to be a reason who, who did something. Well, I think there are natural consequences to certain diseases oh, yeah. that as a believer, you could have that and you're going to suffer those natural consequences because it's God's will for you to yeah. go through those consequences and, 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 and the natural uh, yeah. existence that we live in is a fallen world. Yeah. So, you know, well, it's you, like the help, you know, it's like the prosperity gospel. I mean, it's even now, you know, name it and claim it, you know, I, you know, yeah. I decree and I demand. I'm like, I hear people say, I'm like, what are you crazy? <laughs> you, you could decree in and demanding what? And when it doesn't come to pass, well, what happened to your decree? I didn't know have faith. No. Well, no, and to make your point further, in John 5, the man with the mat who Jesus heals, sin no more that nothing worse will happen to you, potentially implies his original blight was a judgment on his sin. Um, I couldn't be dogmatic with that, but I think it certainly said, Jesus certainly seems to suggest there's consequences. Sin no more that nothing worse happens to you, you know. Um, we certainly do know that illness and yeah, Psalm 32, my bones wasted away while I didn't confess my sin. Your hand is heavy upon me. Oh, yeah. there's Just because not all sickness is a judgment of sin doesn't mean some isn't. Absolutely. Uh, just ask Nebuchadnezzar when he was eating grass, right? Um, okay. Other questions, thoughts, complaints? You got anything, Mandy? No. Okay. She'll ask me Wednesday. She'll quiz me on Wednesday. Okay. Anything else? I got more places to go, but I'll, I'll let you guys go first. Anybody? Anybody? So practically, how do you do this? This is, this is great counsel and all. You remember, Serena, when you were pregnant with Abner? We used to go on prayer walks on the bike path in the snow because Abner was born January 19th. And w when, one of the things we do, I, what I need to remind myself of constantly is I'm a slave. I'm property. I'm owned. I'm not my own. And I live like a, I live like a, a maverick and a free agent. And so I was recognizing that it wasn't as much that I was doing wicked things, but I was living like someone not under authority or rule until usually like halfway through the day. It'd be some part in late morning, like, oh yeah. 
you know, and up to that point, I'd just been doing what Jeremy wanted to do. And since what Jeremy wanted to do wasn't particularly wicked or particularly obviously bad, there's no problem with it. And I was getting convicted that, man, I need to get up and hit the ground. Like, what does my master, what does my father want me to do? How do I, I want to serve and please another. And I just wasn't thinking in those categories. I was thinking in those categories of what Jeremy wanted. Um, and frequently what my father wants me to do is to delight in his creation. It's not as though like, they're fundamentally at odds. God's given us all things richly to enjoy. There are times where my father wants me to rest and enjoy his, his creation, but I'm resting like a servant serving his master by resting. You know what I mean? Um, and so we used to, remember, Serena, we'd go, where'd she go? There she is. We'd, we'd go on our prayer walks. we just remind ourselves of these truths. Practically, it'd be reading, confessing, praying through these things. Lord, help me to help me remember just how frail life is, how vain and unimportant these things that are really big to me are you know um these things that can be so big in my sight because they get up front and they they blind me to internal realities are not really that important um not it's not to say they're so unimportant forget about them it's getting them in their proper priority list it's getting them in their proper like ordering of priorities and and coming at them like a steward and not coming at them like they're mini household gods go, go to james four In James 4, he addresses worldliness, which he links with double-mindedness. Remember the double-mindedness, the, the term he probably coined, meaning split or dual-souled, diasuke. Um, we, have, we won't have any writers using that term. It only occurs in the Bible twice in James, one in last week's passage, once in James 4. And James 4, man, this is some, this is some psychology right here. This is fantastic. This is a, let me get here, man. James 4, 1 and 2 should just be bread and butter. If you have any bread and butter passages, this should be one of them. About the source of anger and conflict. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Now, our answer is they, them. It's something outside of me. They make, even the way we phrase it, they make me mad. Jeremy was passive. Somebody reached inside of Jeremy and maddened him. Just, you know, they made me mad, Right. Biblically, you're talking about they provoke me to wrath. It's subtle shifts in your wording. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to jump on how you say it, but it's not for nothing that even our language is shifting the causality. I'm a passive agent. Madness, anger happens to me. Um, and he says, "No, what causes quarrel and fights among you? It's this: your passions, your pleasures that are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel." Notice another thing James has done. He starts out. We always do this. We minimize our sin. Starts out with quarrels and fights. A little fight and a little quarrel. And James calls it war and murder. It's just a little quarrel. Just a little fight. War and murder. Murder. Why? Because I want something. And then these passions create the conflict. Well, it's the same passions that cause us to be loving the world when and dealing falsely with God, right? So look at verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, there's that word again, passions. So what's the source of my quarreling and fighting and my murdering and my warring and my relationships? Jeremy wants stuff. Maybe what Jeremy wants is respect. Maybe what Jeremy wants is to be left alone and have a peaceful time, whatever it is. They don't have to be wicked things. But once I'm starting fighting for it, 
then I've made it into an idol. Is there anything wrong in wanting to relax, catch your breath? But what happens when I don't get it? Okay, I'll fight you for it. I'm going to get my peace and quiet. I'll fight you. Watch out. So what causes conflicts is I want things. And then I come to God wanting things, and God has something to say about that. You adulterous people, which is really weakly translated. The ESV at least has a footnote. You adulteresses. It's plural feminine. Greek, plural feminine nouns do not represent mixed groups. Plural masculine nouns can. Brothers. We get this even in English. James uses brothers, by which we get brothers and sisters, right? So if you've got a mixed group and you've got a um, inflected language, if you've got a mixed group of male and female, you're going to use a masculine plural noun. Brothers. To address the mixed group. You do not, the reverse is not true. A plural feminine noun does not mean brothers and sisters. It, it's used for women. So why do I say this is important? Because when he calls the church scattered adulteresses, that links to all sorts of Old Testament imagery and language in Ezekiel, say, of God's unfaithful whoring wife that you're going to miss if it's you adulterous people. It's you adulteresses. He's, he's naming them what the Old Testament names this. And so what he's saying is coming to God, asking for things, not as a servant, not as a child who wants to please him, but because actually I have my own agenda, the things I want, is committing adultery with him. I remember teaching through this with the youth. It's like going to your husband or going to your wife and saying, hey, can you give me cab fare to the brothel? It's exactly what it is. Can you give me, can you give me, can you give me the cab fare to the brothel, please? I want to go serve my passions. I want to go commit spiritual adultery, and I don't have what I need to do it. So can you give me what I need so I can indulge my passions and my pleasures? Dave, let's get a microphone to Dave. It reminds me of uh, Romans 7 when Paul is talking about his battle, those things that I want to do, I don't, and those yeah. things I don't want to do, I do. And he calls it death. He said, who will deliver me from the body, body of, death. of this death? Yeah. And then he goes on and says, but thanks be to God who has delivered me from myself. Mm. But he actually calls it, he calls himself a clay pot and that he's trapped in a body of death. And I know that nothing good dwells in me. I boast in my weakness. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me track the progression in James a little further. Just with the time we have, I want to connect this. So notice the progression. Our desires that aren't fundamentally wrong. They don't have to be wrong. Epithumia is Greek. Don't have to be for bad things. But when you're willing to fight for them, they've become idols. The test for an idol is will I sin to get it? Will I sin if I don't get it? Or will I sin to keep it? That's, that's how you identify idols. What happens if I don't get the thing I want? What will I do to keep the thing I want? Um, and so that creates the horizontal conflict among the people. Then when we come to God with those same passions, we commit spiritual adultery. You adulterous people. Then he links it with loving the world. So notice the chain. The passions show up in verse 1. The passions show up again in verse 3, which then gets translated to adultery, which then gets translated to loving the world. Who are you committing adultery against God with? The world. And having an affair with the world which is the umbrella category for all the different things the world has. Less of the eyes, less of the flesh, boastful pride of life. Um, so you adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, which is 
the anti-gospel, because the gospel produces, Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we are having what? Peace with God. The fruit of justification is peace with God. The fruit of loving the world is hostility with God. It's, that's what I mean by saying it's the, it's the anti-gospel. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All of this rooting back to our passions. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that is made to dwell in us, which is still using the marriage metaphor of a jealous husband. Jealous in a good sense. He cares for his wife and her faithfulness. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now he's bringing in pride, which links in with the self-sufficiency. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll free from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you. Only other time in the Bible, double-minded. Which is trying to say all of this stuff's tied up together. The double-minded person is someone who's inwardly has passions that love the world, want other things, and that's creating the division. And that ties right in with how you're going to view yourself. Well, I love my possessions. I love my wealth. I love what it gives me. I don't like being told it's nothing and it's vanity and it's unimportant and God wants me to use it a certain way. I like the privileges. I like getting the good seats. I like the respect it gives me. I like the way people, you know, curry favor from me. I don't want to give that up and count it as nothing. Okay, well, then you love the world. You're double-minded. You're viewing yourself the way the world views you. That's, that's the way the world sizes things up, right? So, yeah, you're important. You're a big deal. And James is saying, if you want to fight those temptations, you're going to have to constantly view yourself biblically pushing back against that. Okay. We're at time. I'll stick around for a few minutes to chat. Thank you. And uh, have a good day.